is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest who joined me via Skype is James Wood, author of the novels The Book Against God and Upstate. He has published three books of critical essays and the nonfiction book How Fiction Works. Wood is a staff writer and book critic at The New Yorker and was previously the chief literary critic at The Guardian and a senior editor at The New Republic. His new novel, Upstate, focuses on an Englishman named Alan, who is in his late 60s and goes with his younger daughter, Helen, to upstate New York to visit his older daughter, Vanessa, who has recently been plagued by depression. The novel takes place over six days in a wintry Saratoga Springs and probes the nerve endings of these family members as the narrative subtly explores their connection to each other, their past, and their potential future as a family. We began the interview with Wood discussing if there was a specific question he was pondering about the human experience when he was writing his novel, Upstate. There is the proviso, of course, that that I think fiction doesn't answer questions and but 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 simply raises them or lets them circulate and that's what we love about novels in a way um but yes there's, there there are a number of of pressing questions um and and i suppose the major one has to do with with um the arbitrary or apparently random distribution of happiness and unhappiness in in people's lives particularly within families I think it's often true about about siblings, for instance, that um, you know if you have say three siblings, two of them will have done okay, and then one seems to have done less well in the competition for happiness. That was to some extent the case uh, in my own family growing up, um, and then um, becoming a parent and seeing one's kids uh, grow up is to see how little, uh, to some extent, one can actually. Um, affect their lives. Uh, I mean, there are lots of ways, of course, in which one can, you know, materially do things. But when it comes to this mysterious um, quota of happiness, it, it 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 sometimes seems to me that that happiness is is some kind of um, inherited mystery, uh, like um, musical ability or you know athletic aptitude, um, and uh, that's that, of course, is a painful. That's a painful thought. Um, so really, I was trying to—I was trying to think about that in my in in my novel. Um, trying to, uh, the, you know, the book is about a, a father with two daughters, and and one is—I mean, they both have the same experiences, but one seems to be uh, less robust in dealing with those experiences than than the other daughter. Do you feel like happiness is a goal? in life or that's something that parents just want as part of the <laughs> cocktail of their children? Right. That's a very good question. I mean, to what extent is happiness, for, for one thing, a sort of parental fantasy? To what extent is happiness a sort of bourgeois fantasy to be sort of prepared for and controlled and paid for like many of the other things that bourgeois parents uh, work out for their kids? You know, I, all the time I was writing my novel, I thought it was. I thought I was thinking about happiness and unhappiness. Um, since it came out and, and and reading a little bit from it and talking about it to people, I've come to think that it isn't so much about happiness. It's really about buoyancy or stability or confidence, even. 
I don't think it's necessarily reasonable to think that your kids will be happy, certainly not all the time. But you want for them a certain level of, a certain equilibrium, a certain level of confidence. And of course, confidence is as mysterious as, as happiness, uh, as, a, as, an, as an achievement. Um, why do some people seemingly have it and others seemingly struggle to, to, to find um, you know, the, the confidence to do things in their lives? And so as a parent, I mean, you, you were mentioning that in your own family growing up with mm. your siblings, you had maybe this differences in happiness, and then you've experienced this as a parent. And I'm just wondering if you could talk about this as both a parent and a writer, because you, even though this is a concern of yours as a parent, mm. it's also a concern of yours in your characters and as a writer. So, I mean, growing up, I, I was a sort of fortunate middle child. I had an elder brother who was five years older than me, who, like a lot of older kids, um, had to take some of the the, the, the knocks. The, we had a fairly sort of depressive and quite angry mum. She was passionate, let's put it that way, and, and there, were, there, were, there was a lot of temper there. Um, and he, as an elder kid, I think, took a, took a lot of that, and it made him, looking back, I think it made him more anxious and reserved, uh, I feel. Um, by the time I came along, um, I think things were, you know, things he, he pioneered away. It was easier for, for me. Um, and I felt sort of very sandwiched between my elder brother and younger sister. And, and I think when, when I look at us as adults, I, I can see certain patterns and, yeah, a certain easiness, I think, that came to my temperament. Uh, and, uh, you know, who knows how much of this is also just inherited and, and, and begins the moment we come out of the womb. I don't know. Uh, but, you, you know, you certainly see that when you have, when you have kids. You know, why is, one, one, why, is, you know, why is my son completely different from my daughter? Why is one a reader and one an athlete? Why, you know, these are, these are not things you have apparently much control over. So thinking about all that uh, was, was certainly a foundation for this book. And in addition, I wanted to, to write about a slightly older dad. He's 68 in, in, in the book. And I particularly wanted to write about a character coming from England to visit his uh, daughter in America um, and being forced to tend to the, to the realities of her American life in a way that he's never really needed to do until this moment. Um, that's to say, he hasn't visited her in Saratoga Springs. She's always come to him um, in England uh, in the summers. And when she does that, of course, even as a grown-up, she fits back into a pattern of of child and of daughter and and father. This way round, with him visiting her, he has to attend to her as an adult. Um, but he also has to attend to America. And that was that was part of the fun of the book was taking someone who's always rested on a fairly complacent and fairly standard issue uh, anti-Americanism, not not a strong anti-Americanism, but a kind of reflexive sort of lack of interest in the place, and slowly see him warm to an existence that that at first alienates him. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is James Wood author of the novel Upstate, and staff writer and book critic for The New Yorker. 
So Alan is the father, and his daughters are Helen and Vanessa. Yeah. And Helen lives in England and comes and basically is in New York, and Alan comes to meet her, and they go to visit Vanessa in Saratoga Springs. Vanessa's the older child. And I think Alan, um, as he goes, you know, he's also thinking about his own life. I, I feel like you start the book not necessarily with a sense of nostalgia, but with a sense of of time passing because it's mm. both probably utilitarian so that the reader understands a little bit about these this this family, yeah, but also to sort of get us settled in Alan's mind, and he's sort of thinking about being sixty eight and remembering yeah. his marriage and the births of his kids and all that. And I'm sure this was a very conscious on your part, but can you talk about sort of that structural choice? So one of the other um, fun things, I think, about writing the book, uh, in addition to this sort of throwing a very English Englishman into, uh, into his daughter's um, American life and, 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 you know, his daughter's rural American life, you know, upstate New York, um, was uh, sort of posing the question of how might it feel if a certain kind of existence that you've taken for granted, um, his company, uh, his company's prosperity, um, a certain kind of English stability, etc., etc., is threatened, threatened or disappearing in one way or another. So the novel is set in 2007. His property company is beginning to have some difficulties that he had not foreseen. Um, he seems to, he feels he's overextended himself. Uh, there's less money than, it, than, than he thought there was. There's the natural thing of getting towards 70 and realizing, you know, I might not be around forever. And that then, then things will pass to a next generation. Um, and I suppose it was that all, all, those, all those things came together, that sort of feeling of, or I wanted them to come together, that sort of feeling of being at, at once really important still in his, in his daughter's lives, uh, but also um, seeing... Uh, superfluity on the horizon, right? I mean, he's sort of, there's a point at which he's going to become unnecessary or less necessary. Um, and I thought if I could do that and somehow combine that with, a, with, with his own, you know, he has a particular kind of nostalgia for, for English industrial power, uh, which is, you know, he grew up with that. Uh, that, was his, that was his post-war confidence, in a way, if we're speaking nationally. He grew up in the north of England. Uh, that was still a sort of powerhouse of steel and coal, and the country was producing and making lots of cars and all that sort of thing. Um, and that's now a long, long time, a uh, long, long time ago. In that sense, I suppose, you, you, you know, the book, uh, although it's set in 2007, is very much, I think, a book that was actually written uh, during, the whole, uh, during the whole Brexit um, withdrawal, in a way, because it is a withdrawal of British um, involvement and, and, and authority in, in Europe and in the world. So both sisters, so you have Helen, who's probably more, more confident, at least outwardly confident, more vivacious. She's, she's not, you know, she's having problems with her marriage and problems with her career, but she seems to handle the bumps mm. more. And Vanessa, who is just more, she's more interior, she's more introverted. She takes the world on in a harder way, even even with, uh, you mentioned, it was a beautiful passage about how she dealt with confrontation and that mm. she couldn't handle confrontation very well and she felt like if there was an argument over something that maybe the relationship would be 
over. Right. And, and there's such very particular characteristics about these women. And I'm just wondering if you could talk about building their characters and these sort of characteristics and traits you gave them to make them full people and, mm. and your process of creating them. Before I was seriously writing the book, I, first of all, I did, I, I, and I took notes, and, and, and the notes definitely, first of all, had to do with, with dates, because I wanted to, you know, if so-and-so is 40, then she was born, you know, in 1967 or whatever, um, I needed to get that sorted out. Uh, and then, yes, I began to, I began to think of them, to write down some of the characteristics uh, of each, uh, and and particularly to think about how these two as adolescents dealt differently with first with the trauma of their uh, parents' divorce and then uh, and then as young adults uh, I guess in their twenties with the trauma of their mum's death. Um, I wanted to do that tricky thing, and I'm not sure I necessarily pulled it off, but uh, but it's always seemed an ideal to me is to create, particularly in in Vanessa, to create a character who who is inexplicable. Um, who is mysterious, whose unconfidence isn't transparent um, and may have no obvious uh, explanation, um, even, at the, even at the risk of sort of frustrating or boring um, the reader. That seems, that seems worth doing because it seems so, uh, it seems so true to, to life. And Vanessa, she is, she's a philosopher, she is yeah. into the life of the mind. She is, you know, really grappling with some of these ideas that she can get really in the weeds with, like that yeah. life is meaningless or that nothing matters. And you can clearly imagine that if that's what you spend your days thinking about, of course, happiness isn't necessarily easy because you're analyzing life to this, like on a cellular spiritual level. Yes, absolutely. So. Uh, you know, it's been a sort of family mantra, uh, a convenient way of, uh, I guess, a convenient way in some senses in the, in the way that families have of of explaining differences between the two sisters, that Helen does things and Vanessa thinks things. And when Helen wields that particular mantra, it's useful because it it explains to her, I think not, you know, explains to her why... Vanessa is the way she is. Uh, she spends too much time brooding. There's too much reflection, whereas you know Helen just gets on with stuff. But I also like the idea, and I think you're absolutely right that that there, there's an obvious danger in in reflection. And one of the things uh, Vanessa is trying to sort of work out professionally. Um, I mean, actually, in the class that she teaches with her students, is is it possible to live life happily, fully, confidently, securely, and reflect on it, uh, to think about life at the same time, critically, even anxiously, uh, philosophically. But I also, I also like the idea, which in a way is an almost comic one, um, that someone whose job is to um, teach and think about wisdom, you know, what Aristotle calls human flourishing, might be bad at it herself. We think of Traditionally, we think of philosophers as, as, as wise people who might be able to teach us, um, if only by interrogating uh, us or our, our beliefs, um, teach us something about how to, uh, how to live well and happily and virtuously and, you know, all the sort of 
Socratic uh, uh, qualities. Um, but what if actually you're a complete mess um, uh, while trying to teach, um, you know, Aristotle and Plato? That 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 appeals to me um, as a as a sort of tragic comic um, uh, curse. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is James Wood, author of the novel Upstate and staff writer and book critic for The New Yorker. I think what was interesting about sort of her her crisis of of confidence and, and happiness, at least in w- the scenes that we're seeing, are taking place around love. So you have this 40-year-old woman who's gotten through a lot of life. She's been in America for a long time away from home. And finally, when she finds someone that she loves, it sort of takes her stasis completely out of balance. And I think that's so interesting how you can sort of live your life and all of a sudden someone comes in and whether it's an obsessive love or a healthy love or a temporary love, how that can throw people off everything they've ever known. And I'm Mm. just wondering if you can talk about that. Mm. I love that. I think you put it very well. Also, think of the way in which families write the narratives that after a while that, that help to, as I said earlier, that help to explain things and that also tend to stabilize and tamp down. I mean, families are conservative units. That's the, that's the problem, I think, with, uh, in a way, I love being a parent, but it's all, but I, when I reflect on, on being a parent, I often think about this intense sort of conservatism of, of, you know, it's like sort of cultivating your own garden, you're cultivating your own uh, family and, and nothing else matters. But, but in this cultivation of family that goes on, you know, we tell narratives that not, not only explain the way we've all turned out, but that also tend to freeze, I think, the way we are. And I think, you know, in relation to Vanessa, there was this narrative that began to be told about, you know, she's a thinker, not a doer. Um, she probably thinks too much. Uh, she's been unhappy, you know, from, you know, from teenage years on in, in, in various bouts of happiness. And I think the other narrative has been, well, she's just not the sort of person who, you know, that maybe there have been a couple of boyfriends, but she's not really, she's destined to be alone. She's not the sort of person for whom love is really going to happen. And it's certainly unlike her sister, it doesn't seem that there's going to be a, a husband or children or any of that. So she's got her philosophy and she's got her unhappiness. And as you say, what's exciting um, in terms of any story, whether it's in life or in a book uh, is when that story of arrest uh, is completely broken open um, in the way that it can be uh, which is serendipity Uh, oh she has a boyfriend and not only you know does she have a boyfriend who it's not that she has a boyfriend who's going to turn out to be like the last two uh, of no account she's got someone who might change her life who might be the one um and uh, that's what I yes that's I wanted to bring that into into the book because it's got to be it's got to be the the point of acute concern for uh, for her father and indeed even for her sister they both see uh, that the stakes are very high and without giving anything away they both see something potentially about the relationship which 
Vanessa may not see, uh, or or may have glimpsed. I mean, did glimpse, I think, and and it, and it precipitated a crisis in her. But but she now thinks that, that that's all over and everything's going to be fine. And and I think Alan, in particular, fears that everything may not be fine. Writing it, I felt, or thinking it out in terms of the plot, I thought that's a nice dynamic that will that will keep a certain level of of anguish and complexity going right to the end of the book. I felt like a lot of the dialogue here was mm. like a play. And often when I was reading it, it felt like a play. It was yeah. just alive in that way. And I was wondering if you were thinking about that or what that even meant. I was actually. I'm glad you say alive because some of the negative reviews uh, that I've received in, in the UK and a couple here in the US too, uh, I've said that it's, that it's mannered. And when I'm being self-critical, you know, in recent weeks, I've begun to think that that there's too much dialogue and the dialogue is carrying too much and that the dialogue, you know, because these are sort of educated people, has a certain sort of, yeah, maybe a sort of stagey gentility, which it would have been more effective to have cut back. I don't know. Once I, once I realized it was going to be a small group of characters in one place over five or six days, then um, it began to feel very much to me like plotting out a a play, people coming into a room and leaving a room and and shifting alliances and a certain sort of choreography, as I said, in that in that room, undercurrents that 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 sometimes are obvious and then sometimes are, are invisible. And I mean, I I've always liked Chekhov Chekhov's plays. I did have in mind, you know, a sort of a play like The Cherry Orchard or something or Three Sisters. Um, I mean, I like I like that feeling of coming to the end of a Chekhov play of, of feeling that everyone, including the audience, is sort of exhausted, wrung out, fatigued, but that actually no one has got anywhere. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Sort of, you know, we've been through the ringer, but nothing has changed. It's a little bit perilous because it can, it can produce a novel which seems to have nothing happening in it. Sort of, these people come together, they talk a lot, nothing really happens, the book ends. Uh, what's the point of it all? But I, I don't know, I like that there's a, there's a sort of glacial progress that certain families, perhaps certain English families make, uh, in which not enough is said. Um, you know, you think you're going to have some uh, great moment of, of change, revelation. and um, But the truth is, I, I, I at least feel that, I mean, speaking for myself, family life is a bit more like a Chekhov play than it, than it is like a Eugene O'Neill play, where people are sort of shrieking drunkenly at each other um, and, you know, physically fighting, you know, wrestling each other to the ground and that sort of stuff. Um, that, that's, a, that's a model, too, and you see it in, 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 you know, you can go and see that play, you know, every night if you want on, on Broadway. But, but I like this, this sense of, of paralysis and stasis and imprisonment in a way. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is James Wood, author of the novel Upstate and staff writer and book critic for The New Yorker. So how does the literary critic take the criticism? <laughs> um, oh, about as badly as anyone else. <laughs> I ought to have some distance, and I think I'm, you know, I think I'm getting better at it. There's that old... Uh, there's that old Kingsley Amos line, which I which I recite to myself often about how a bad review should spoil your breakfast but not your lunch. I would say that it probably spoils my dinner too. But um, 
I, I can't get that wisdom that certain writers have, or at least claim they have, which is, you know, I never look at my reviews, and I just, that's all part of show business, and blah, blah, blah. Uh, I, I'm extremely interested in each review. And I suppose the philosophical point I try to come to, uh, which I think just, like everything in life, takes time, um, but, you, but which one eventually comes to, I mean, I don't think the, I don't think the hurt disappears, but, but, but the philosophical point I try to come to is that is that even the even the stupidest and most hostile review probably has one thing in it that you can learn from, right? I mean, even uh, I think it's somewhere in Henry James's letters he says, you know, even even the person who just who has nothing to say except this is boring um, has something to say to you, uh, and I try to. I try to tell that to myself. Um, you know, I can be violently disagreeing with a, a piece that seems just like a hatchet job and nothing much to do with the book, and then there'll be one thing which makes me think, "Wow, maybe that's maybe that's true. Maybe it is too mannered, or maybe the prose is too pretty, or whatever it is." I, it, it, it's not a bad thing to try to to uh, reflect on what you didn't get right and how to do it better next time. And I'm I'm early enough in the business of writing fiction, despite you know, despite my advanced years and the fact that it's been 15 years since my last novel. Um, but uh, but because it's a second novel, I, I don't I'm I'm reasonably humble about some sense of apprenticeship, right? I mean, I I want to write the next book because I want to do the things I didn't get right in this book better. Well, I think the pressure, though, like I just wonder if you go into writing. Because you've written a book about how fiction works yes. and, and all of that, if you go into a book almost with some level of paralysis because of what you do every day. So here's the funny thing, and I'll be absolutely honest with you. Actually not. Um, the, the self-consciousness and, and, as it were, paralysis comes absolutely after, um, and it's, it's, as it were, foisted on me when the book comes out and is reviewed. So, so... I mean, perhaps this is utterly naive of me, but but when when I look at the reviews I get, uh, even the positive ones, um, and they all tend to begin with, you know, uh, what would James Wood the critic think of his own book? And the negative ones then go on to say, you know, he'd he would brutally take it down. It's a piece of rubbish, and you know, but, and then the positive ones say, you know, not bad, a promising start, still more of a critic than he's a novelist, blah, blah, or a better critic than he's a novelist, but, you know, this is okay, or even better than okay. Um, I'm always completely, I, I read those reviews, and I'm thinking, and, and I'm sort of blindsided by them, which is absurd, because, you know, but I'm sort of thinking, why do they, why must they quote something I wrote 20 years ago in a review? Uh, you know, why must they quote hysterical realism essay or whatever um, and use that against my uh, novel? Why can't they just review it and see it for what it is in the way that they would review, in the way that next week they'll review a non-critic's novel and see it for what it is, even if they don't like it? For me, actually, there was no paralysis at all. Uh, I wrote this initially slowly with many interruptions, but that was because I was having, I, I was always having to teach and and review books and 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 you know be a parent um and so that i would often stop for months on end which which i think is not a good thing to do uh when you're trying to to you know write a larger work 
But I didn't stop because I was too self-conscious. Um, actually, whenever I was writing, the writing seemed like a liberation and was quite easy for me and pleasurable. Um, and it was wonderful not to be writing uh, reviews for once um, and to be able to, to, to write a kind of prose um, that, that I can't really get away with much in, in, in my journalism. Um, but as I say, the, 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 so, so it was actually always felt like a, a liberation for me. It's, it's only that when, it, when it's then reviewed, it feels like the opposite of a liberation. It feels like a, a, this in, intense straitjacket is being put on me, and it can only be seen through the lens of my criticism. And, and those are the moments when I think, my God, I wish I'd just written this novel under a pseudonym and tried to get it published under a pseudonym and just see what, how it's reviewed on its own merits. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? I, I love Willa Cather's novel, Death Comes for the Archbishop. Uh, I remember when I first read it, um, and um, I read it because I was actually on my way to New Mexico uh, to interview a writer. I was, I was in my early 20s, um, and I was working for The Guardian, and someone said to me, oh, if you're going to New Mexico, you have to read you have to read Willa Cather, and you have to read her book about the building of the Santa Fe Cathedral. And I read it, and they're absolutely right. You you go into you walk up the street in Santa Fe, you turn the corner, and there is this extraordinary um, 19th century uh, cathedral that sort of rises out of the uh, uh, pretty much out of the desert. And you think, how did that come to be? Um, so Death Comes to the Archbishop is the, is the novel that she wrote about how, uh, about how this cathedral came to be built by um, a French uh, Jesuit, uh, uh, Father Latour. And I, I love this, the, the end of the book when he's dying, having achieved what he set out to achieve, which was the building of this cathedral. So I'll just read, um, yeah, just the three quarters of a page. During those last weeks of the bishop's life, he thought very little about death. It was the past he was leaving. The future would take care of itself. But he had an intellectual curiosity about dying, about the changes that took place in a man's belief and scale of values. More and more, life seemed to him an experience of the ego, in no sense the ego itself. This conviction, he believed, was something apart from his religious life. It was an enlightenment that came to him as a man, a human creature. And he noticed that he judged conduct differently now, his own and that of others. The mistakes of his life seemed unimportant. Accidents that had, that had occurred en route, like the shipwreck in Galveston Harbor, or the runaway in which he was hurt when he was first on his way to New Mexico in search of his bishopric. He observed also that there was no longer any perspective in his memories. He remembered his winters with his cousins on the Mediterranean when he was a little boy, his student days in the Holy City, as clearly as he remembered the arrival of Monsieur Molny and the building of his cathedral. He was soon to have done with calendared time, and it had already ceased to count for him. He sat in the middle of his own consciousness. None of his former states of mind were lost or outgrown. They were all within reach of his hand and all comprehensible. Sometimes when Magdalena or Bernard came in and asked him a question, it took him several seconds to bring himself back to the present. He could see they thought his mind was failing. But it was only extraordinarily active in some other part of the great picture of his life, some part of which they knew nothing. 
I've always loved, I love the, love the sort of the calm lucidity of that, of the prose. I love, I love this idea that, you know, he's, he's, he's sick, he's in bed, he's, in, he's on his deathbed. Um, and to the people who are coming and going uh, in the room, he, he just, he seems to have already disappeared. But in fact, as Cather puts it, um, he's, he's actually at the center of his consciousness. Um, beautiful. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is James Wood, author of the novel Upstate and staff writer and book critic for The New Yorker. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. I'm actually also going to read from the end of my book um, because this took me... I, I had to write it a few times, the, 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 the last page or two, the uh, last page, because... I wanted a, a, a sort of open and ambiguous ending, a little bit like a short story. I, um, and I wanted um, the reader to feel um, a measure of optimism and, and allied, as you'll see, with, with, with the notion of sort of spring coming to, to a, a wintry uh, upstate landscape. Uh, it's February uh, when the novel is set, so really the, you know, the dead of winter. Um, and I needed to get it right, uh, and so it took me a little bit, a uh, bit of time. So here, um, um, Alan, uh, Alan goes outside onto the porch, um, and he realizes it's the first day, really, that it's been where, where the where the where the fierce cold has relented, and it, he realizes he can see ahead um, to a time when there will be no uh, snow. Um, Alan stepped out the door onto the front deck. For the first time since his arrival, it was warm enough to do so without flinching. Vanessa had said that when spring came, she could feel her body unclenching. You've gained another lease on life, she said. You've successfully finished another precarious chapter. He understood that. Spring was still far off, but now he could imagine it in this landscape. The plains of solid ice would turn scabby and piecemeal. The redundant snow packed against the sides of the buildings would weep away into the gutters, leaving grit and salt on the perilous sidewalks. Then would come the movement, the blessed stirring he knew so well from his old life in Northumberland. It was the season when he and Candace would start their long walks, and long before Candace, he and Cathy. The daffodils would come, and then the sharp yellow life stab of the Forsythia bushes, like an advance envoy from summer, and the frivolous brief cherry trees... Eventually all the birds would return, the swallows and cuckoos, and the male chickadee whose hopeful minor third, a mating call, she would hear every morning at the bedroom window. And upstate, upstate, spring would turn to summer with peals of wisteria bells, and the strong trees, the poplars, the maples, and the oaks would fill out and become joyful green worlds again, upstate. And the rest of life, that American life which had become Vanessa's world, would wake up too. She would learn to love again the most familiar things, the crimson and black livery of the boar's head trucks, the growl of the brown UPS vans, the squeal of the rusty squat blue mailboxes, which looked to English eyes so much like rubbish bins. Yes, even the hard flap of the 15 American flags on Broadway. The beautiful train horn would yell across the valley's warmed air, no longer the sound of a wintry Christmas harmonica, but now the searching cry of a migrant animal. So I wanted to, it took a little, 
time to write because I wanted it to be very much a, you know, it's an expansion. It's a, it's a, there's no doubt that it's the, it's in, in sort of prose terms, in lyrical terms, it's the culmination of the book and it's a sort of register or rhetoric uh, on a higher level uh, than, than, than the rest of the book is written. Um, uh, but, uh, but I didn't want it to be, too, you know, I wanted to, I didn't want it to be too, um, too poetic at the same time. Um, and so I needed to, I needed to get the balance right. And so that took a bit of time. Where do you write? Um, anywhere, in fact. Um, I have no designated space. Uh, and looking back, thinking about your question and thinking about this book, um, where it was written, I can say it was written uh, in um, hotel rooms, cafes, uh, at my desk here, uh, in a couple of libraries, um, at the kitchen table when, when there's no one in the house. Um, so, yeah, pretty much, uh, pretty much, possibly even on a train, actually. So, um, as long as there's, as long as there's the conditions for silence, I can, um, which might mean, you know, like headphones or something, uh, I can, I can write. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Uh, that's easily done. Um, <laughs> so just as it's hard to find somewhere to, uh, a sort of de a dedicated space, um, and, and, and writing sort of happens all around. Um, so the converse is true. Uh, life happens all around and it's completely, uh, and is, and is constantly interrupting, uh, writing. So in that sense, I don't feel I'm ever getting away from writing. I feel it's the other way around actually that I'm, but I'm trying to get away from life to write and that not enough writing happens. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I always show it first to my wife, uh, the novelist Claire Massoud, um, and I think it's true to say that she always shows me her manuscripts uh, first, so we are each other's first readers, which is, uh, which is pretty great. How have you dealt with rejection? I haven't had the I haven't had the canonical uh, rejection of um, you know of being turned down um, by uh, publishers, and that's probably a good fortune of you know having made a name for myself in a in a in, a, in an adjacent career uh, as a critic. Um, but as we were saying earlier, I've certainly um, I've certainly had the uh, I've certainly had the rejection of uh, of uh, of negative reviews. In fact, the first review that this novel got in England, uh, you know, I went online and there it was in the in the Times of London, uh, and the strap line was uh, Wood may be a brilliant critic, but he's certainly no novelist. Um, and that can seem like rejection because uh, you know that's <laughs> that's pretty uh, that's pretty um, <laughs> emphatic. Um, and I think uh, I think you deal with it. Um, Yes, I deal with it like I would have dealt with a letter from the publisher saying, you know, you're certainly no novelist. Uh, forget it. Uh, you, you just, um, you have to, uh, you have to find a, a, you have to find the, find that confidence in yourself. Um, um, that in a way is a kind of, it's a form of sanity, isn't it? Right. I mean, you're, you're, all the time you're writing a novel. Um, it's as if you're hearing voices in your head in, in one way. Um, and then you go out into the world, you publish it, and if, as it were, the first review says, 
actually this is no good at all. You were hearing voices in your head. There's a there's a there's a there's a perilous moment where you actually think maybe I'm completely insane. Um, maybe I've just this is just a vanity project and it has no objective quality. Um, and you teeter for a minute, uh, and then you have to write yourself, and you have to go to the people you respect. Uh, in my case, uh, it's Claire, uh, my wife, and an editor, and my publishers, and, and a friend who's read it, and you have to say to them, I'm not mad. Reassure me I'm not mad. This has an objective quality, right? And and they say what they're <laughs> what they're employed to do, which is, you know, um, they say it has an objective quality. You're not insane. You're not listening to voices in your head. Um, it's it's real, uh, and that's the way you ground yourself. There's no other way. And what is your favorite word? Oh, there are so many. I'm reminded of that lovely line. You know, there's that Robert Lowell poem epilogue where he just he's talking about photographs and he he just he has a great line of adjectives. Um, what's the um, lurid, rapid garish, grouped. I just always love those four words. Um, so I'm, rather than one, I'm going to give you three actually pretty ordinary words, but they're all delicious words in their own ways. Fatuous, ripe, bland. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest who joined me via Skype was James Wood, author of the novel Upstate and staff writer and book critic for The New Yorker. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.